Listen, you know, learning more about the band this week, you can't help but lose respect for them. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where longtime friends and musicians get together to uh, take an unnecessarily deep dive into a randomly selected album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week, we've been listening to the soothing sounds of soft rock <laughs> pioneers, Guns and Roses. <laughs> they, they are not that... How dare you say unnecessary? I feel sleaze rock needs to be uh, excavated much more thoroughly. Oh, and it will be. It will be. Yes, these are, in fact, the pioneers of sleaze rock. Let's get right into this. This is going to be a, a wild one here, I think, with Guns N' Roses. Appetite for Destruction is the album that we are going to talk about today. Um, and let's just get right into the music here. Now, pretend you're in a hockey arena. The score is tied. The home team is on a power play and playoffs are on the line and it's time to make some noise. And this is the riff that you will 100% hear. <laughs> Okay, you most likely know this. You most likely know this album, um, but there are some cool things that I uncovered that I think you all did as well. Very excited to talk about this one. First, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves with a quick tweet-length review of this album. Let's start with you, Phil. If Pink Floyd has been described as sonic alchemy, Guns N' Roses' appetite for destruction would be... Sonic debauchery. <laughs> I thought you were going to say sle- sleazy alchemy. <laughs> Sonic debauchery is good. I want to. Yeah, we got to use that one again. Debo- definitely debaucherous. No, no question. All right, what do you got, Rob? My tweet length review of Appetite for Destruction is as follows: Glorified stripper music made by junkies, drunks, and assholes. That's. <laughs> Pretty much sums it up. Definitely, these guys definitely uh, paints a picture. Scumbags. That is fairly <laughs> accurate. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is Alan here, and, and my tweet length review is: This record has everything you could possibly want in a rock and roll band, a rock and roll record, rather. Relentless riffs, raging guitar solos, howling vocals from a charismatic frontman, and just like tons of swagger. But most importantly, this might have actually been the record that put the first nail in the glam metal coffin. There's some debate about you know when that sort of started but i think this had a lot to do with you know people starting to move away from from the bands of that era so already got that going for you gnr 
Okay. I was going to say, that's one of the things that I was struck by. I should say, I'm coming to today's conversation, of course, both as a child of the MTV 90s and thoroughly familiar with most of these tunes and Guns N' Roses aesthetic, but also someone who enjoyed Motley Crue and Poison a bit, maybe a little before Guns N' Roses came on the scene. And so, and I also read Mick Mick Wall's Last of the Giants trashy rock biography this week about Guns N' Roses. Mick Wall of Kerrang! fame? Mick Wall of Kerrang! who's called out and get in the ring. Yes, exactly. And so I I have much to add. But anyway, but, but my question was, how is this so distinct from hair metal because you it seemed like Guns N' Roses were really anti bands like Poison and yet they are kind of indistinguishable in a sense I disagree I disagree so I think they were lumped in and this is probably one of my biggest takeaways in just continuing to go I've heard this album dozens hundreds of times right I had always lumped them in with the hair glam metal scene of that time. And I had always lumped in with bands like Motley Crue and Poison. Those bands never wrote songs that were this good. Like I defy you to go back into those catalogs and find music that's this good. And I think music that's this real and real in the sense of like, not the real world, but this is the real world that they were living at this time. All the shit they talked about, all the, the sonic debauchery, like, they they were walking it like they talked it and the bitch slap rapping and the cocaine tongue. Yeah. <laughs> Although that did come <laughs> later. But yes, it was exactly that. So I think that they started, you know, obviously like the time this this record was released in in 87, right? But they had been kind of off and running in this configuration since about, you know, 85, 86. And I think they were lumped into that category, but this is just different. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of surprised. So is that this their first release? Yes. It was their first major label release. They did come up with... So they were essentially signed by, by Geffen, I think, in 86. They made this album that ultimately was released in 87. I think they did something in the middle that was some... It was called like Live Suicide or something like that. I have to look... I think they came up with something to sort of keep the peace because they couldn't get their shit together to get the album yeah. out. There, There is definitely a pattern here for Guns N' Roses of having a hard time finishing recordings that were promised, right? And it starts here. And yeah, I think they, they put out some live tracks and maybe something that looked a little like demos in some kind of limited release to tide, to tide the band over, to tide the Hollywood avrats who are thirsting to buy this material over for for a little while you know here's what's funny though it's actually something else i i came across in in researching this album obviously it's a debut album with a mission statement of a first track which we'll we'll get into in a little bit with uh, welcome to the jungle in my mind i'd always assumed this was like an overnight sensation like an overnight just smash album, but it actually wasn't. This was released in 87, but it wasn't for another year or so that they actually started getting traction. I think the reason for that was because nobody wanted to touch them at that point. So MTV didn't want to play them. Retail stores didn't want to sell their records. And it took Sweet Child of Mine, which is the antithesis of the rest of the album, 
which is like a tender sort of love song, dare I say power ballad, which might be underselling it a bit. And that was when they became really like a household name, right? And so we can kind of get into that in a little bit, but they were not the overnight sensation I think I had originally thought they were. Now, you said that nobody wanted to play them or like carry their records. You saw the original artwork, of course. (laughs) Yes, yes. I don't even know how to describe this other than some kind of like, I uh, this is like what the Terminator fever dreams about. I don't know. <laughs> this is pretty dark material here. But they, I mean, it's that kind of thing, but also of which I think they pressed at least a thousand copies, right? And those are very rare and collectible these days. But also they were just known to be extremely difficult human beings to work with. They were definitely drug addicts at this point. And Axel was a very difficult person to work with. So one of the things I was surprised by reading this trashy rock bio is I would have thought that stardom is what went to Axel Rose's head. But that's not the case. He (laughs) was an asshole from day one. Good for him. Axel has always been sort of a... Uh, a dickhead in that way and but i think if you go back and look at his upbringing he had a really shitty upbringing right so he was he was raised in this town called lafayette indiana which i'm assuming is like cornfields and you know really like nothing going on but he grew up in a really like religious pentecostal household his dad apparently was a real dick was really abusive physically and sexually he ended up being arrested i think like 20 times as a teenager but one of the things that he the probably the only thing that kept him really like keeping any of his shit together was the fact that he learned how to play music growing up and learned a lot of it through like church based music, which is kind of interesting. You know, I, I wouldn't really connect to those things, but he he grew up just really fucked up, really angry. And that did not change at all. And I'm obviously the band sort of amplified a lot of it. But yeah, he was uh he, he was he was a bit out there. I'm coming in a little hot for this podcast, I have to admit, because I think ultimately I do like a lot of the songs on this. I think the band, and particularly Slash, sound great. Axel's a great singer, etc. And the writing is generally pretty good. However, I, so I'm just coming in a little hot to be somewhat adversarial, but also, you know, to, maybe to take them down a peg. But but two, but two things uh, about that anecdote about Axel's upbringing. Yeah, it does sound like he had a rough go of it. I just, for some reason, it pleases me to let the world, more of the world know that his God-given name was Bill Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, yeah, Bill Bailey. Or I think he also went by, by William Rose. So he, I think Bill Bailey might have been his stepdad's name who he later found out that he had a different biological father. Then he changed his name back to Rose. But I right. think, so I think it was William Rose for Correct. a while. Correct. But that was later. So I think for, for a significant portion of his life, he was William Bailey or Bill Bailey, which just sounds so milk toast. I just, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> and yeah, I think Rose is Rose is either his biological dad's name or his mom's maiden name. I'm not sure which it sounds one way less hip than Axel Rose. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Way, way less hip. Well, I think he acquired the name Axel from one of the first bands that he was in. So, you know, he famously in the early 80s moved out to, to L.A. with Izzy Stradlin, who was his like childhood friend, which I didn't really know. I thought they all met when they were out in 
in LA, but at Axel, apparently one of his first bands was just called Axel AXL in all caps. And finally someone was like, Hey man, you should just call yourself Axel Rose. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And I will do but, that. But just, but just a quick, I have a few anecdotes to drop in here, but one of them about Axel being a dick and setting the tone for really the rest of their, their careers and presumably their lives was that when they first were starting to get a little heat on the LA scene, they got their first manager and the manager manages to get them a gig opening for Alice Cooper up in like Santa Barbara or something like that. They're not signed. They don't have a record recorded even. And so the band's like really excited to go play this gig opening for Alice, Alice Cooper at this big venue. And Axel just doesn't show up at the gig like at all. And the band just has to go on without their singer and like Izzy and Duff have to like try to do the vocals. I just I could that I found that unfathomable and like how much you would want to kill this person after. Yeah, after I being would assume that, that would be a deal breaker, right? That would be the end of the road, right? It would be, but I think first of all, well, something we haven't touched on yet is, and it, it's obvious, not some secret here, but I mean, Axel's vocal talent. It was is is pretty. I mean, generational is probably a played out word. No doubt. Yeah, it's pretty unique. It's pretty unique. The, yeah. the band, obviously, it's not a collection of guys, right? So this isn't one of the situations where it was Axel and a bunch of sidemen. He was the front of the band, but there, the the backing band really was a, a tight kind of unit. Uh, but he was really the the straw that stirred the drink, I guess you could say um, a little bit about the band though, you know, so obviously William Bruce Rose jr. Or William Bailey, which however you want to call it, Axl Rose, uh, Izzy Stradlin, who I mentioned earlier, rhythm guitar and uh, backing vocal Duff McKagan, the, the pick wielding bass machine and uh, Steven Adler, the, uh, the drummer who was later fired over, you know, essentially hardcore drug use and you know they brought matt soren in to do the user illusion stuff they forgot you forgot to mention saul hudson oh shit i there's a reason i made i put him last because for that exact same reason so thank you for bringing me back to that yeah saul hudson aka slash who apparently was born in britain i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah either. that's interesting and and also grew up but then grew up in la in laurel canyon and like part of a scene where his dad like designed album covers. I think his dad designed the album cover for Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, for instance. And uh, there was an anecdote that his mom probably had an affair with Bowie. <laughs> I was hoping that you would come with the goods on that because I came across <laughs> that. Apparently the context was that they were filming a video for the song It's So Easy, which was actually like the first single off this record, believe it or not, which I didn't really know. And the, Bowie wait, wait, was just the, hanging out. You're talking about this record. The second track on this record was released as a single. Correct. The first single. Wow. And it, it caught on <laughs> in UK. UK was like, yeah, this is great. I, I To me, it's a little bit more of their kind of more mediocre shit. But apparently during the filming of this, at the time, not only was Bowie apparently, you know, banging Slash's mom, apparently he also was really looking hard at Axel's then girlfriend at, I think that's when it was, uh, Aaron Everly, who he also wrote sweet child of mine about. Apparently Axel chased Bowie around the block and may have punched him in the face a couple times. So I, 
they definitely had some kind of run in. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but they yeah. They they had they had some some kerfuffle happen there. So first of all, I just want to say that this band has undeniably cool nicknames. You got Axel, Izzy, Duff, Slash, and then the just, and then the last guy just doesn't get a name at all. Which is <laughs> funny Steve to Adler. me. He was just he was just the last in line and they're like, sorry man, no more names. That's it. Well it sounds like they all came with a name, right? He came with the name Steven Adler and they're like, I don't know, man. They're like, Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's gonna work. He was kind of considered the weakest link in the band. He rocks really hard on this album, but I think he was not quite on the level musically that the rest of the band was in. Um, and, and speaking of which, let, let's talk about the music a little bit because we could go on forever on like the the dudes and their lifestyle and and all that. But like, generally speaking, like Rob, you alluded to throwing some shade at, at the band, but or at, at this album. But kind of curious overall impressions in in going back to it. Uh, so I'll start. I think the music is is really good. The band impressed me more this time. I was, you know, of course I've I've listened to it before and I'm super uber aware of the big hits. But when you really listen to the the composition, especially what Slash is doing, I think it's very hip, very very impressive, very layered. What's going on with the two guitar attack? So overall, very positive on that front. I will say, though, the other thing I thought was, man, they listen to a lot of Aerosmith. Because this really <laughs> sounds like 70s Aerosmith. Which is, you know, that's not a knock on it, really, because that stuff was cool. It's better, though. Am I, am I wrong on that, at least? Well, it's definitely, like, cranked up to a zillion. And in that way, is better, right? Because, you know, I think the best early Aerosmith definitely isn't dialed up. You know, like this is. Yeah, I'm just saying Slash went to the school of Joe Perry riff writing, for sure. But I think that he ele- the music gets elevated partly because of the songwriting that's happening around that, like in Axel's voice. And I think they hit a couple moments of true transcendence on this album. But other otherwise, I believe I stick by my tweet, which is a lot of it is kind of trumped up. Uh, strip club music and you know, like really good bar band type material, which you know, fair enough, right? That's that's fun to listen to. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, in my mind, I've always elevated this to higher than that. Like I, I feel like the this album definitely it's it is not a perfect album, like by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think. 90% of it I do think is actually really solid and you know the 70s Aerosmith thing I get that but to me it, it feels much more uh, it has much more just like character to it much more depth I think um, but it, clearly they were listening to Aerosmith I think some of them were even listening to bands like Sex Pistols and others because I kind of found this to be like even the more I listen to it there's there's obviously the rock element but I think there's a lot of really like punky aspects to this album as well. Like a lot of, it has some decent groove, like say what you want about Steven Adler and his capabilities. But I think there's some disco ish groove going on to some of these songs. Definitely rhythm. I think there's a lot of that sort of pan guitar that Rob 
sort of uh, referenced that definitely gives you like a lot of movement against the drums. Uh, We haven't haven't brought up ACDC yet, but like there's definitely Mm -hmm. some like ACDC lineage here too, right? Sort of downstream, dry, pan guitar, sort of playing super similar things in the rhythm section. I just, I think I was really struck particularly, you know, we talk about in the context of some of the songs by the style of guitar playing or guitar. I, I always pick up on it when the guitar player you can tell the guitar part was written without a care towards singing anything, meaning the guitar player and the singer are completely divorced or those parts are being written totally separately. And I think of that as a Joe Perry, Steven Tyler thing. And, and just to clarify, what I mean by that is you're playing complex rhythmic counterpoint to what ends up going on the vocals in a way that it would be very hard to sing and play it. You would never realistically sing and play it. But but you wouldn't write it that way if you were thinking about layering a melody on top of it. And so I think of Slash as very much in that school. And it's cool as hell. And it it ends, and because I I guess it's so prevalent for for the person who's writing the lyrics and melody to also be the person who's writing a guitar bed, I don't know. I, I think it does stand out in the musical canon. And that's why it, that's one of the reasons it makes me think of, of Aerosmith. I know they were also big Aerosmith fans and, you know, just excited. Even though Aerosmith at this point, we should say, was in was pre-comeback Aerosmith. Was like right? loving yeah, an elevator territory. They were definitely in rehab. <laughs> and actually, that was one of that was some other definitely other anecdotes because they did eventually go tour with Aerosmith or play a couple shows with them. But Aerosmith kind of was afraid to put them on tour because they were such crazy unhinged drug addicts and Aerosmith were all clean at that point and trying to like piece their lives back together. <laughs> They're like, I don't know, I can hang with you, man. Speaking of speaking of speaking of unhinged drug addicts, I just want to drop this in that there was some talk in the very early days of Slash and Steven Adler snorting a drug they called locker room. What? Which is apparently some kind of bathtub amyl nitrate. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man! I figured they'd have access to more, you know, robust shit than that. This was this was this was early cheap drugs. This that is really the brand though that this band built, and they it was one of the things that was obviously their their undoing. You know, I think the band lasted. You know, they started in eighty five. They were definitely by ninety five, pretty much. You know, a few of the members had already quit. I think Izzy Stradlin was the first one that was finally like, yeah, can't do this anymore. Um, And then they all kind of phased out at that point. So, I mean, they were together for 10 years, but really they only had a five year probably run where, I mean, they were as hot as you can get. But they also came with so much of this baggage. Like, I, I think a lot of the narrative became... What are they going to do now? What's Axel going to do? You know, there were so many instances of him jumping into the crowd, you know, to fight someone who was videotaping <laughs> sure, him. Sure. Um, I mean, shit, listen to Mr. Brownstone. He literally talks about being two hours late to every <laughs> to start every show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these guys were definitely not easy to, to work with at all. Just to bring it back to the music, I'll just say from my own personal taste, I do like some of these songs quite a bit. But the songs I end up liking from them more and associate with them more when I think back fondly to them is some of the stuff that came up later on Use Your Illusions, the the more grandiose, you know, November Rain and Civil War and Don't Cry. And one of the things that I really found surprising, and you can hear some of this on the deluxe edition of Appetite for Destruction that's on Spotify, 
is songs like Don't Cry, November Rain, You Could Be Mine, and Civil War were all in the mix in these early days. They were all demoed back then. Dude, look, looking at the track list for like what was sort of like on the table is kind of nuts, right? Yeah. I agree. And these are these are primarily Axel compositions. Yeah, apparently November Rain is something he had been he's been working on since he was in high school almost because he was a piano player mm-hmm. uh, originally, as as Alan alluded to, and he's always had this grandiose vision for what that song could be. But I think probably one of the reasons they held it back, other than maybe they didn't feel like it fit the band at this time, was that he just didn't feel like that he could give it the production weight that he thought it deserved. Sure. And yeah, perhaps right, you know, he was right, I think. But what's interesting though is they as usual the usual illusions came around when a lot of this stuff was really rolled out. I agree that 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 was in my mind like more of the of the pinnacle of their like creative success in my opinion, maybe not commercially, although commercially it was you know all their songs were smash hits, but the band really wasn't into it at that point. Like I think in those years of Guns N' Roses, that's when it started to become more of like the Axl Rose show. And I think everyone else was kind of like, eh, this is great, but this is just isn't who we are. You know, we're not supposed to be doing these ballads. These like really kind of long drawn out epics, you know, Axel's jumping off an aircraft carrier in the strange video and swimming with dolphins and shit. Like, I don't think they, <laughs> they had necessarily signed up for that. Um, but I do think those were the, in my mind, like kind of the apex of their uh, creative output. Well, that I heard that was one of the things that Axel was so pissed about because I'm sure I bet we all w- went back and watched some of these early MTV videos, which had a a big impact on their success. You know, Alan mentioned that the album was a little bit of a sleeper hit, and the Welcome to the Jungle video starting to pick up traction was one big aspect of that seeing axel rose slither around on stage and jerk around in a straight jacket was definitely imprinted on my young brain but what i was going to say was axel was very he thought he was like a film director even back then so he was really even though they had given him 75 grand to make a couple of these videos he was just like no we need we need 75 crane shots and we you know <laughs> he just stuff that was just completely undoable at that time, which he later made yeah, good on. I saw that the that the budget for Appetite was like four hundred grand or something. You guys said this was their first record. They worked it, yeah, because they were really hot. Okay, they were they they. So I think the story is approximately right. They played this Sunset Strip scene, and they got a lot of heat just in in the clubs, and they had a following in L.A. and they hadn't really left left L.A. too much, but they were they were very hot, and something about that scene and and them made record companies want to kind of bid for them. So they had a bit of a bidding war to get the contract, and then Geffen won the contract and just gave them the house and just said do whatever you want, and they poured over. This record, that's I think that's one of the reasons that Alan mentioned they, they ended up having to release something in the interim because they took a long time making this. Yeah, thing. Yeah. It has a very live band feel, it rips. but it's yeah, actually yeah, pretty sure. worked over. Yeah, it is. It's it is very worked over. Part, part of so I think I think there's a few other reasons for that. Number one, apparently they were so unreliable and it was hard to know when they were actually going to be in the studio that apparently they had to just buy large blocks of studio time so that it could be at the ready whenever 
you know, the, the spirit moved them to play so that they could capture that live aesthetic in the studio. So I think that just the hold they had to put on studio time to accommodate their, their whims was, was kind of one thing. The other thing though is, and I really never realized this about Axel, which should have been apparent with what we talked about earlier with the, you know, November rain and, and all those, those, those things, but he was a a perfectionist, right? And so even though most of the members in the band were always, well, everyone was always drunk. Most of them were strung out all the time. Axel actually was the one in the band that was not addicted to any of the hard shit. Like he had done it, but in his mind, he, he, it was not a habit for him. You know, he, he kind of knew when to, when to use and when to get himself clean to be able to do his business, which is probably the only reason they even survived as long as they did to be frank. But he was also a perfectionist. Like, like apparently he insisted on recording almost everything on the album, like line for line. Right. So he'd sing a line, debrief, figure out what needed to be fixed, sing another line, which has to be just completely. That's insane. Completely insane. De- definitely a perfectionist and definitely only got worse as time went on, which is why it took so long to make User Illusion and then famously took a very, very long time to make Chinese Democracy. Like 20 years. After that, like 20 years, exactly. But but yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Alan, because I thought I didn't know that either, that he was not straight edge, but the person who had their shit together the most when it came to drugs and alcohol. You had Slash and Izzy were j- straight up heroin junkies. Like before they even got this recording contract, and then through user illusions, I think Izzy's the first one that cleaned up, and that's part of why he left the band first because he was like, I can't deal with this anymore because now I'm sober. And then at some point, Steven Adler became a heroin addict. Duff, I think, was just a unabashed alcoholic through the whole thing. And Axel, and I, I assume this is why one of the reasons he would say the band broke up is that is that tension between the heavy drug users. And non, you know, Axel is a non-drug user trying to hold it together, even though he acted like someone who was such an unreliable addict because he would show up to shows late, three hours late or not show up at all or cancel at the last second. He would just like literally, you know, he just storm off stage. Just random things would happen in the show, and he would just decide that that was his breaking point, and he'd leave, <laughs> and they'd have to try to coax him back on. It was like insane. Yeah, he might be insane, yeah. right? He's insane. He's it's really clear he's insane. There was a there's an anecdote I heard where there was a show where right before the show, they were already late to go on or whatever, but Axel couldn't find his bandana. So he makes the manager <laughs> go out into the crowd and confiscate one. <laughs> Just take one from someone. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. He's like, go he's get like, me okay, a good bandana. Go a fucking good one. Oh, man. To just put a fine point on how crazy a junkie... Because Slash managed to keep his... I think Slash now has this image, not exactly a teddy bear. He's still a little dangerous, but he's he's had a consistent music career. You know, after GNR, he was in Velvet Revolver. He's done some things solo. He's kind of out there. And so you don't think of him as a crazy drug addict, but I read that he needed the Narcan shot, you know, like the shot like the that Pulp Fiction shot. gets in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. He needed that shot to be revived from a heroin overdose five different <laughs> times on just this tour. Jesus Christ. 
Dude, there are days where I feel like I'm not going to make it till 60. And then I hear that this guy's heart received fucking five of these. Right. <laughs> That's so intense. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let, let's get into the tunes here because I think, you know, we're, we're kind of getting around to some of the, the meat here. But um, let, let's dive back into uh, the rest of Welcome to the Jungle. So look, despite all I said so far, this might be the best intro that's ever been laid to tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it. You talk about like you know best you know first song, first record sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely within seconds. You know, the mission statement has been, you know, uttered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is arguably the best debut song yeah, for any band totally. ever, and if. If you want to argue against that, your argument is just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was thinking about it in the context of the other excellent intro that we we talked about quite a bit on this podcast, which is the killing in the name of intro. And I think it follows a fairly similar pattern of sort of tension building, the feeling that you're in one groove, but then there's even even better groove right around the corner. There's like I think these should be studied. If you're trying to write a good intro to a rock song, those are two masterclasses, mini masterclasses in, in what's happening. But the, the one thing I just want to point out, and I guess we'll have to drop in a clip, that really cracks me up every time in the intro is Axel's vocal cha. <laughs> snare <laughs> snare noise right as it kicks in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly really what you're talking about. Seals the deal for me. <laughs> This song, I mean, it's probably the most iconic intro, one of the most iconic guitar intros of all time. The amount of time is, I, I, I don't know if there's some kind of counter, if this is like an ASCAP thing, but like, I really wonder how many times this riff has been played just at some kind of sporting event. Or I remember in high school, like the wrestling team would play this as like the people came out to do their introductions. Like this, this song is just, I mean, as Everywhere. far as I know, they still play this as part of the Flyers pregame skate song, right? Like, it's like a 20-minute warm-up, right? Like, this probably makes it into the mix to this day. It's built. It is built for stadiums. And that's, you know, there is a through line here that I think is impressive about this whole record, or several songs on this record, this one included, is that it really sounds like they already know they're going to be playing the stadium in Rio like when they arranged this and, and laid it down. There's like a confidence to it that is undeniable. For sure, for sure. And and even just, there, there's so many, there's so many just constituent parts of this song that are just so awesome. 
you know, the line at the end or, you know, coming out of the bridge into the final segment of, do you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. You're going to die. Like, apparently Axel, like, <laughs> heard that from some guy in Queens when he first went to New York City. And, you know, some homeless guy was like, hey, do you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. And he just held on to that for years and turned that into, like, an it's awesome great. moment in the song. It's great. It's so iconic. Yeah. And, it's, and this is such a great line. Like you said, a mission statement. You know, they're they're talking about L.A. and the kind of sleazy L.A. Hollywood lifestyle they're living. At this point, they're like they're practicing and living in basically like a storage unit with no windows and no bathroom right behind the Sunset Strip. So, I mean, it was so it's so down and out, so skid row. Right? It was it was debaucherous to the max for sure. Yeah, yeah. These dudes lived in squalor. I mean, they like the sleaze was not just shtick for them like they actually were living it well but, but i mean that that part of it actually makes the fact that they rip so hard that much more interesting right because like it makes it hard to believe that they were like that's true working their balls off at practice or something right like i you know what and this is yeah it's an important note because the other record i want to draw a line back to that we've talked about on the podcast was new york dolls i'm not sure if you guys were in that conversation but New York Dolls was heralded as the beginning of something, I think, of a kind of a sleaze rock aesthetic. The difference, or one of the large differences, and it was made, in, I don't know, 15 years before this or so in New York. The distinction, I think, is just how much tighter this band sounds. New York Dolls sound like they were hanging on by their fingernails at every single song. Like the band was in the process of falling apart while they were playing and they were just trying to speed their way over the speed bump. Whereas Guns N' Roses sounds like a super tight band with just really, really good, well-oiled machine type musicians. They, they practiced hard. They were, they were really tight. Well, and they just played off each other so well too. Like I think the, the configure like that original configuration was, was, you know, it's, it's like, could there could they have found a better bass player? Obviously, could they have found a better drummer? Sure, like like every band, right? But like, there was something about that group of guys that just the rhythm section, the pocket was so tight, and Slash was so sick, and Izzy really knew his place with rhythm, and and uh, you know, and then Axel with the cherry on top. Obviously, it, it was uh, worked out really well for them for for a little bit anyway. For yeah, for a very little bit. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's go into the tune Mr. Brownstone. Mr. Brownstone, these 
So look again, I wrote, man, these guys listen to a lot of Aerosmith. I, I just go back to Toys in the Attic, take a quick scan. That's what this music sounds like. I understand this has become a a little bit of a classic, but to me, it's it's not. It's definitely not their best work. Uh, it's not the low light, but I pointed out that the the two dead string intro, like the pan dead string intro effect, just doesn't really work for me. After such an amazing intro on some of these other songs, that that's so funny that you mentioned lacking. that. I my very first note on the song was that the intro is fucking awesome. <laughs> really, there's something about the way it works up and. I also, you know, I may have some Stockholm syndrome with this album because <laughs> it was such a formative album for me that I definitely had some trouble like separating, you know, my memories of the music with a, a sober look at kind of mechanically what's happening. I thought it was cool though. I I actually love the song. It's one of my favorite songs on the on the track. Like I think it just rocks really hard. This song though in particular was where I picked up, and I I don't know if Aerosmith, you know, seventies Aerosmith does this, but or maybe this is just a normal kind of rock trick. But I'm not really a guitar player. It seems like more than half of Slash's solos on this album come in the form of like a key change. That sometimes they maintain for the rest of the song, but sometimes they go back, and That's each an time yeah, it yeah, like yeah. Serbo, it like turbocharges the solo in a way. Like I don't mm. know if anyone else picked up on that, or if that well, he like, definitely yeah. does it in Sweet Child of Mine, right? Yeah, and I actually, yeah, Welcome to the Jungle does a similar thing, doesn't it? It's. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way. I did notice it a couple times, but you're right. It is an interesting trick. I think probably what it does to your ear is it makes all the tones that he's about to play, even though they might be the pentatonic tones in the scale, just sound really fresh and new because you haven't just been hearing that exact same set of tones in the melody or in the other parts of the song. But it's, I mean, I feel like it's a little tricky to land, though, because the band has to transition correctly mm-hmm. to those sections yeah. and 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 they do as a band have great transitions uh, certainly well to your point earlier like you know phil you made this point it, it is they're, they're walking this like tightrope despite seemingly being unable or on like not having the wherewithal to really be able to execute well yeah it's like they can't show up to work but if they do show up to work like you know they're these crazy you know performers yeah Slash is great. I got more respect for Slash this week, especially given his rampant heroin addiction in this time, because he sounds amazing. And by his tone, I don't, I don't actually, I don't love the rhythm, not the rhythm guitar, but kind of the main bed track tone on this. But I would say in general, Slash's tone, his solo tone that comes through on so many other things is just so great. And I, I totally agree. I mean, we can talk about it more when we get there, but I actually like listening to this record, especially in headphones, you know, for the first time, you know, maybe ever, honestly, I definitely came around to Guns N' Roses a little later, like after Terminator 2. 
uh, and like the use your illusion records. But that doesn't mean like I wasn't hearing this music before that. I just wasn't sort of like consciously listening to Guns N' Roses. But yeah, I mean, like even when Sweet Child of Mine comes on, it's like it even seems to have like elevated tone above the the rest of the records already. Sort of like buttery sweet, less paw yeah. distortion. Yeah, he's got that squeaky, overdriven, but like really full. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a very signature tone. In fact, like before I even knew how to play guitar, like before I even touched a guitar string, I knew what a Gibson Les Paul was just from Slash. Yeah, sure. And I'm sure that, you know, it's it's a easy, easily replicable tone if you have the right gear. But like to me, anytime I see like a gold top Les Paul, I just immediately think of Slash. And I think there's some something to be said for that. Okay. Let's move things along to um, another one of the smash hits from this album, a tune called Paradise City. You know, this one to me stands out. I, I think it's a, a successful track, certainly. I think the intro is also excellent. And there, there's some little tips for how to how to write an intro. I think both in this one and maybe in the Sweet Child of Mine intro, it's, it's present a little less in Welcome to the Jungle. But the use of a drone note. Are you talking about the synth note? Or No, no. I, no, I, I literally just mean in the riff. That he's like doing the he's doing some chord changes, but he's letting one note ring mm, out. I don't know gotcha. if it's open. Oh, I thought you were talking about and, that low that low vocal note, the kind of drone. Oh, take oh. me down yeah. to the paradise. I, yeah, that, yeah, I the, the, that the five that. axles coming at you. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> intense. Yeah, but it works. Yeah, it does. This song does have a very prominent synthesizer, which is interesting. I think compared to a lot of the other parts, you don't even notice it. Like. But it does. It's a very like it's, it almost sets in like a horn section, which is just a, I think a really unique element of this song. It's the I don't think there's any other song that has that much of a prominent synth part. I think Axel plays that. It does seem kind of weird, but it does fit in. Like the whistle too. I don't. Yeah, I've just yeah. come to accept that that belongs in the yeah, song. Yeah, the whistle is is a very odd choice. Yeah, but yeah, yeah you just very, accept it. it. Does. But it kicks it off so well. Like it just it it shouldn't work, but it just does. It sounds like they already ha- know they have a mega hit while recording it, which is, I guess, one big advantage of kind of battle testing these songs, which I imagine 
they did. Just the confidence that this is going to be a stadium hit. And, and actually, here's another thing they did that was pretty pretty savvy is when the video for this is them playing at a stadium. Sure. So I think that reinforced in my mind that like, oh, this is just stadium rock. It's just like already they're there. already here. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or they're just they're like their positioning. They're like, hey, this is a this is an anthem. It's a rock anthem, whether you like it or not. And it's very anthemic. It's an all time. The, the chorus for this song is it's it's an all timer. This song is also like burned into my brain specifically because I remember like you know, I'm going back to being like eight years old when I was first starting to flip the channels through on MTV and coming across this video. I was born in a, in a town called Paradise in California, which is actually since most of it's like perished in a, in a fire. But I thought that this song was a nod to my birth town of Paradise growing up. And so I developed this affinity for it. And then I realized, no, they're not talking about this like one horse town up in Northern California. This is really about LA. Although there is no grass in LA. I, I want to just make that like clear. <laughs> I see a disconnect. The grass can't be greener because there isn't any in LA, right? Maybe he's talking about weed. I, I don't know that they would even waste their time on weed. <laughs> <laughs> why, why smoke weed when you have locker room? <laughs> <laughs> waste of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I do feel like this this song in particular, even though I think it's a great song, it does illustrate some of the other problems with this album, which is they go on for a little bit long. And some of the outros and, you know, especially for this song, it's like the double drum riffs when he says, home, home, like they do it twice, which apparently was a joke that the producer was sort of like, hey, what do you what do you think of this? And Axel's like, I like that. <laughs> it's just like, why? Yeah, it's a little bit much, I think. But uh, but oh no, I mean, it tracks really, in at really almost seven minutes, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. and they probably it's, play all of it in the video yeah, cut. Six forty five. Yeah, you're right. It is a little long. And actually, that reminds me, I heard uh, an anecdote that in Welcome to the Jungle, they originally wanted to do the arrangement was to do the when you're high, you never ever want to come down twice through and the and the producer the guy in the booth was like you should cut that and like really press them to do it to make it a tighter song good choice <laughs> all right let, let's just go from from hit to mega hit with the song sweet child of mine <laughs> you to walk to guitar center right now and somebody is playing this riff 
in that store as we speak. This is definitely up there with Stairway to Heaven and Back in Black, you know, uh, for Guitar Center, all-time most played riffs, Smoke in the Water. I was going to say, but in comparison to those riffs, it is a little bit harder to play. For sure. So it is a little yeah, bit call. more Absolutely intermediate to advanced level riffage. You well, that's like what makes it worse. Because and... <laughs> right. you get it the people be who like, think they're good, and they think they can do it. And um, But also, I think this is has come to be sort of common knowledge that I was not aware of, that apparently the riff for this was kind of a joke that Slash was playing as like a warm-up. That they were like, hey, let's kind of work with this and see what we got. And I think to this day, Slash still kind of hates this song, but has has basically just surrendered to to the momentum at this point. That makes sense. Yeah, I, 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 I read that, too, that he's he's not a big fan. But what I was trying to say about the Paradise City riff and this riff, too, is they both in the intro, they use a droning note to create tension i think that's a really important aspect of how to write good intro so that when the band kicks in you feel like this idea of one one note ringing out or one note being plucked consistently um even though this this riff has it too right where there's like a chord change happening kind of in the in the lower register but the upper register remains the same so you have this like tension and release aspect to what's going on. It's a little overly analytical for what it is, I suppose. But I just think that if you're trying to write intros that rock, that's a smart place to start. Yeah, totally. There's obviously a bit of a formula to what they do. And I think they do it pretty well. I'm not sure there's a ton of like diversity on this album in general. This one obviously stands out, like we said earlier, as the the contrast of the album like this is the the sort of sweet you know ballad it's the slow jam right compared to the rest of the record it's a slow jam but it's also this is the only number one hit from the album which i was sort of surprised i would have assumed welcome to the jungle was a hit or was number one but yeah this song was was the only number one hit you didn't from think the album. it's so easy rushed number one <laughs> mr brownstone i think could have been close <laughs> I can't believe they released that as the first single. I find that shocking. That would be my least favorite song on the record. It's not a good song. It's not great, yeah. Well, just, you know, an, another thing I read that is of interest is that Rick Rubin passed on mixing this. That he was just starting to get heat and they offered it to him. And just in the spirit of like no one even wanted to touch this stuff. They didn't really know what they had on their hands. Maybe the band did. But I think the industry kind of didn't know what to make of it. And Rick Rubin famously said, nah. You know, and I think that was probably for the best all around because, I mean, say what you want about this album, but like, there's no doubt it would have sounded different in in his hands specifically. Although, I would argue that straight up, simply being able to like wrangle this band or like babysit the band was probably the producer was probably like 70% of the producer's job. Just getting them on to this show album. up to do the tracks. And he, I don't think he, I don't think Ruben would have been interested in that, frankly, but sounds about right. Yeah. I heard something. Uh, did you guys come across this? I heard that on uh sweet child of mine, that the bridge, uh, the bridge lyrics are fake. 
Like a- Axel was literally saying, like, where do we go? Like there, like there were no lyrics. It's funny. I think Tom actually mentioned that on a, on one of our recent episodes. I can't remember which one where he was straight up asking, like, where do we go now? And he just kept asking it. And the producer was like, you should keep that because it works. Where do we go now? Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go now? Where do we go? It seems to go against the like, I'm going to meticulously craft every line though, right? Then it only needs well, to show I, up on one demo tape, right, to make its way. M- maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe after that, yeah. then he, then he, uh, poured he's got over like triple stacked harmonies. Six months. You know, he's <laughs> well, right. even though he was a perfectionist, like one of the dynamics that they had as a group at that time was that they were all very open about the fact that if you bring something to the group, you're sort of like surrendering it to, to the band, and like, if if something works. And it's not your idea. It's cool. And you kind of like, so check don't your bring ego, your drugs musically speaking. or your girlfriend around these guys. <laughs> oh my God. Oh man. Dude, what a, what a perfect segue to the last song we're going to talk about, about not bringing your girlfriend around, which is the last song on the record called rocket queen. If I say I don't need anyone, I can This is this is some scumbag shit. Rob, what do you got for us? I mean, yeah, this is probably this might be the low light of the record. Just the riffs are very uninspired here, but specifically the Axel having sex in the studio and recording it, which apparently caused the main engineer to just be like, "I'm not staying for this. Like, I'm not. I don't want to be a part of this. You can you can tell me when it's done later." Wait, you're saying he wasn't making him go back in for like you know take ten? <laughs> Didn't quite get of... that one. <laughs> it's just the definition of of sleaze, and um, you know, you mentioned it, Alan, but I wanted to to focus briefly on the fact that Axel at this point was dating or around this time. Anyway, I don't, I don't think this is the woman on the track. He was dating Don Everly of the Everly brothers, daughter, Aaron. And if you, you could not possibly find a more clean cut, like fifties era musician, you know, like the contrast there is just really stark. I'm just trying to picture what it's like for, dad don everly to be asking his daughter he finds out who who she's dating alan you 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 play aaron i'll be i'll be i'll be done so hey hey uh dad i bet this really great guy um his name's his name's bill oh that's oh that's excellent oh that's great what's uh what's this young man uh do sounds sounds like an upstanding fella he's a a professional musician you know makes a good living Oh, great. Oh, that's all. Oh, yeah. Well, as you know, I've had a long career in the music business. We 
we uh, slung our acoustic guitars on our backs and ate oatmeal every morning, and you know it was uh, it was a great life. What's uh, what's this young man uh, uh, play? Well, he doesn't play anything. Um, he slithers around on stage in in an outfit called Guns N' Roses, and uh, his name is Axel Rose. You ever heard of him? I haven't, but uh, that sounds a little more a uh, little little darker than I was expecting. What's he writes really traditional tunes? You know, to, he he writes about like taking your credit card to the liquor store, <laughs> which no one had credit cards <laughs> even back then. Um, but you know, he's a very worldly. Uh, he's from Indiana, so Midwest, nice. Midwestern young man. Oh, that's nice. Nice corn-fed kid. So uh, exactly. I saw. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear there's no shenanigans going on. Then no, it's all in the oven up. Oh, great. Well, (laughs) end of story. We'll never talk about this again. Dude, what's fucked up about this song? So it needs to be also said that the woman in question was Stephen Adler's at the time girlfriend. What a character. Well, but, like, <laughs> what's funny is in looking in in going through some of the research for this, I came across an article that describes the situation, and then just very matter of factly is like, and Stephen Adler was not okay with this. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Stephen Adler. First, he doesn't like, get a nickname. <laughs> yeah, the most fucked up part though was. There was also some quotes from Axel where he was really like intellectualizing this whole thing where he's like, you know, I really had this like vision and this idea that like I really just needed like sex noises on this album. And the producer wanted to bring in like porno sounds. And and I was like, no, no, it has to be real. Like I need to have sex with a woman in the studio. And Steven Adler's girlfriend happened to be there. And for the greater good, you know, for art, she was game to take on this assignment. And that is now memorialized in this track. I'm sure that's exactly how it went down. I'm sure that everybody was sober and thought this was a great idea. Yeah, I just... I just love how he, you know, thought this was some, you know, oh, I have the vision for the song and, you know, yeah, but this song itself is, is not very good. I I've seen some people refer to this as one of the better songs on the track on the album. I completely disagree. I think it's six minutes. It's kind of shitty. You know, I just don't really think there's much there there. And, and, um, this song is a reminder of, of, the the filler i think that that's on the record like there is there are some songs that just there's not much there there frankly yeah i mean there's definitely a take on this record where you know welcome to the jungle brownstone paradise city sweet child of mine you know take your choice on maybe one of the other ones right that maybe has a place in your heart right but there's there's a take on this record where there's five really good songs and a whole bunch of sleaze rock filler it's a take, you know? Yeah, no, and I, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, well, which I think brings us at this point to kind of rendering our, our verdict on this album. So let's go around the horn and decide whether or not Appetite for Destruction belongs on this list. Phil, what say you? So, I mean, I, you know, it's tough. 
Because, you know, I, I do think there is an argument to be made that there's, you know, five songs in Sleaze Rock filler. But in the end, I'm going to go yes on Appetite. I think it has an absolutely unstoppable first song. It, it, side one ends with Brownstone and Paradise City. So side one feels great. My Michelle, I actually think, is kind of cool. Sweet Child of Mine is, you know, overplayed like Rolling Stone songs. Uh, but, you know, I think all in all, this, this has just too many... Too many sort of sea change hits to to deny it uh, a listen. All right, Rob. Listen, you know, learning more about the band this week, you can't help but lose respect for them. (laughs) (laughs) What little you may have already had? So I'm a little conflicted here. Now, that said, I am of the opinion, I take the approach... And I want to try to remain consistent with myself that if you if I say no, then you don't ever hear welcome to the jungle. Right. Which is it's not that realistic. I understand. And and I think, for instance, Tom feels that, hey, man, you've been to a stadium, so you've heard the relevant material. I, I, I don't feel that way. So based on should you ever hear the song Welcome to the Jungle and the song Paradise City and the song Sweet Child of Mine. It has to be a yes for those reasons, but I think it. I think it's been taken down a peg in my mind uh, a bit, and maybe the whole band has also. I, I feel like I also realized the band really just didn't have that much output. For instance, what I had come to think of as their second album, Lies, was also an intermediary bit of f- sort of filler material because they couldn't finish Use Your Illusions for for five years like they yeah it's a total stopgap yeah it's a stopgap and they definitely wrote some great songs but i i don't know i think there is a fair amount of sleazy filler on this record but that said i'm giving it a yes it's a squeaker you you can spend your time getting into the sleaze here it's a squeaker it's squeaked out for Rob. Man, I am actually surprised that there was even like any hesitation about this. Like I, we've mentioned some of the problems with the record and the numerous problems with the band itself. But I mean, th- this is one of the best rock albums of all time, in my opinion. And I think that your musical education has a gaping hole if you don't listen to this. Part of my criteria, I'm also with you, Rob, but like, I tend to have the mindset of like, you're, you're kind of listening to this in a vacuum where you, you can't discount something just cause you've heard the hits before. Like, you know, a must listen album means you have to listen to these songs. Um, so it's already on there for that. But to me, I think the mission statement type of aspect with this, with this record, the fact that even despite all of their issues, it, it's a, it's a really clean you know, not lyrically, but I think musically super clean record. It's got riffs galore. Like I, I'm actually surprised that there's this much debate about it, frankly, but like, nonetheless, I think this album belongs on the list. You sound more animated about the debate than you do at any other time in the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, I, in my mind, I've always viewed this album as just super iconic and, you know, I think it should also be noted they don't have any other albums on the list. And I would have thought one of the user illusions would have at least been on there. So, well, if they had released one of them, they probably would have. Been. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. 
It was within reach. <laughs> yeah. There might have been one good album if they consolidated it, for sure. It's definitely it's definitely iconic. I, I agree with that. I guess I'm just saying that it on re-listen it took it down a peg. But it's it's fun too. I let's not forget the fun part. So and you definitely need to hear some of these songs at least once in your life. Absolutely. All right. Well, you made the list. Uh, add add another to the heaping pile of accomplishments that this album has attained. Um, Thirty million copies sold, by the way, which is just unfathomable to me that anyone could sell that many albums. But uh, there you have it. So let's uh, kick it over to Rob to get into the old mailbag here. What you got for us today? Yeah, excited to get into this mailbag today. It's Rob here, and just want to say before we start. We appreciate y'all listening. Please continue to write in to our email address, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Tell us things we missed. Tell us things you like. Tell us things you don't like. Tell us about the timbre of our voices. Whatever you care to write about, we're going we're gonna to take it into our hearts. And we're going to, well, I don't know what happens after that, but maybe we'll read it on the air. <laughs> so it's a lot of internalization. A lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of soul exactly. surgery. Processing. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, this week we have one from someone called Franklin from Santa Clara. Franklin writes in, love the podcast, guys. I enjoy how you all play off each other so effortlessly. First of all, I assure you there's much there's tons of effort. <laughs> so, so right now. He says, I noticed recently when you were discussing Earth, Wind and Fire and someone mentioned that's the way of the world that they purposely didn't use the term original motion picture soundtrack in the marketing. That's true. I just figured you guys would have mentioned that it was a particularly odd choice because of at least two huge musical successes having used that approach recently, which were Isaac Hayes's Shaft soundtrack and Curtis Mayfield's Superfly soundtrack, both of which were huge hit records that paired with hit movies. Anyway, I realized that both of those movies did get a shout out, but I just thought you should have mentioned their attendant music. Cheers and keep up the great work. Did they get a shout out? I can't remember. One of them was mentioned for sure. I think maybe. Uh, I think at least one was mentioned, but but you're right. We maybe. didn't. Yeah, no respect. We we didn't hit on. Yeah, we didn't quite hit on the musical components of those musics because because that's that's true that that was uh, those were considered hit records for those artists and spawned hit singles, etc. And they were the original motion picture soundtracks to those films at the same time. So it was kind of a trendy thing to do at that moment. And Earth, Wind, and Fire specifically didn't do it. Uh, ultimately, a good call. Well, were those other movies as bad as uh, apparently the Earth, Wind, and Fire movie was? Because they really distanced themselves from it. I'm going to cop something. I've never seen Superfly. But I did see Shaft, and I, I remember I saw it in college at a theater. Like, they screened it at the local theater at University of Delaware. So there's a big crowd there, and it was a rip-roaring good time, I think, because of the audience. I can definitely see that. That sounds like a good time. Okay, we have one more from the mailbag here. This is Kenny from Fort Worth. And Kenny writes, loved the Let It Bleed episode. You guys were extra loose and fun, I guess, because you were all together in the room. I only recently learned and wanted to share with you that Mary Clayton, the background singer on Gimme Shelter, is belting out the words rape and murder. Maybe you all knew that, but it didn't come up, so I thought I'd mention it. (laughs) You know, I think I always, I thought she was just doing sort of a nonverbal vocalization, but now that I... After I read this, I thought back on it, and she is shouting rape and murder. 
I don't think I knew that. I did not know that. Was that on the lyric sheet? Because that's really the only thing I'm going to recognize here. I think I thought I thought it was a hey or something. Anyway. I thought it was she was saying jealous, jealous. I don't know. Well, we'll have to listen to that more closely. But uh, if so, that is a really interesting and dark tidbit to that performance. Uh, I think we mentioned that she really made the track. So cool. Well, thank you, Kenny. Appreciate the tidbit there. We will uh, we'll give that another listen. Again, if you like what you're hearing, if you hate what you're hearing, if you're mad at us for not knowing enough or getting the facts wrong, write us at 1001albumcomplaints at Gmail. We're excited to hear what you have to say indeed let us let us have it we'll, we'll, we'll take what you can dish out all right i think all that's left is for us to look ahead to what we're gonna be listening to next week well what you got for us excited to spin up the old albinator and get this process started get our homework for the week we hope you all listen along with us let's give this bad boy a spin Next week, we will be listening to Dr. John, Grease Grease. Hmm. Hmm. I am not completely familiar with this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it doesn't belong on a list. (laughs) (laughs) Coming in early. (laughs) That's just going to be the podcast from here on out. (laughs) I haven't heard heard this one, but I know Dr. John to be an excellent... New Orleans piano player, but I I, uh, I don't I don't know anything about this uh, this material, so we shall see. What kind of era are we talking about here? I, I really Late know nothing. Late sixties to mid seventies. He was kind of on the scene with the band, right? Like he's in that crew, sort of. He's a killer player, but I kind of have yeah. a feeling that he did like a psychedelic. You know, he had a psychedelic voodoo phase that this might be a part well, of. That's yeah, not good. really a showcase yeah, for his so. uh, his piano playing i'm just psychedelic guessing voodoo, so. you know what screw phil i'm gonna say this does belong on the list just based on that description alone <laughs> well, i'm glad i'm glad we i'm glad we're you know adversarial already yeah we're, we're getting somewhere here <laughs> great cool <laughs> saved ourselves an hour and a half <laughs> all right well uh please join us we'll we'll actually debate this in earnest one week from today but um did we get it right did we get it wrong what do you think if you have an opinion one way or the other, hit us up at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com and uh, we will take that into consideration. With that, I have been Alan. I am Phil. And I'm Rob. Yowza. Yeah.